0: Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshaldon, and I'm at the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. Today, we're going to talk about a book entitled Autonomous State, The Struggle for Canadian Car Industry from OPEC to Free Trade, that was published by the University of Toronto Press in 2013. It was written by Dimitri Anastakis, the L.R. Wilson R.J. Curry Chair in Canadian Business History in the Department of History and the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. Professor Anastakis joins me today in the studio. Dimitri, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Great to be here, Greg. Now, you've been writing books and articles about the car industry in Canada and, in fact, in North America for a couple of decades now. Why this fascination with automobiles?
1: Well, I'll admit uh, right off the start that I am not fascinated with automobiles per se. If your car broke down, don't come and call me because (laughs) I will not be able to help you fix your car.
0: Oh, that's disappointing.
1: But I am fascinated with the auto industry and the impact of the car because I I always say to students uh, how we understand modernity. Uh, how we understand our world is completely shaped by our relationship to automobiles, the built environment, the environment in the, in the, in the air, time, distance, uh, how our uh, leisure, work, uh, school lives, all function are basically around the automobile and how it's shaped society since its appearance in the late 19th century. But I'm also really fascinated by the functioning of the industry itself, how it works from a Canadian perspective. Uh, Canada is a country that has an auto industry, but we don't own any of these car companies and it's kind of an unusual circumstance. And the auto industry itself has been such a core in terms of being one of the key drivers of economic growth. It's been one of the largest employers. It's been one of the most important aspects of how Canada industrialized and how industrialization as a process occurred. So, uh, you know, the automobile and its industry is so central to how we understand modernity. That's why I'm fascinated
0: by it, because you cannot get around it. Well, let's back up a little bit and talk about the enterprise of scholarly history in the first place. Now, Generally, uh, we're able to pigeonhole history into subcategories, whether it's political history, environmental history, business history, labor history, legal history, so on and so on. While some would call your book business history, I would say that it's actually unusual in that it's a real combination of policy history and business history with some political and labor history thrown in for good measure. Do you agree with this characterization?
1: Certainly. Uh, I also say there's a good dose of international relations in there, domestic politics, Canada-US relations. Uh, There's a kind of a political economy framework, but one of the things that I wanted to do with the book was to be as expansive as possible in taking an interdisciplinary approach to seeing how this issue of Canada's role in the North American and global auto industry Shaped and was shaped by all those categories you just talked about. So it is a business history because you got to talk about Frank Stronach and the emergence of Magna. It is an issue of of politics because the politics of automobile, whether it's plant closures or foreign investment, is so compelling for governments. It's also an issue in labor history because it deals with unions and ordinary workers. It's also an issue in environmental history because the book deals with questions around fuel economy and emissions. So uh, it's a, a great vehicle, to use a pun, I suppose, yeah. a, a vehicle to speak about a lot of broader issues. And one of the things that I was most proud about about that book is when it came out, it it got categorized in a bunch of different ways. Was it a political history book or a business history book or a humanities book or a political economy book? And I was like, yes, it's all of the above. I really like that fact.
0: Well, a long time ago, I uh, traveled around with a, a group of Australians, and they never ceased to uh, – help but remind me that uh, Canada wasn't particularly good at producing anything original and uh, they would brag about the fact that there was actually car production in Australia that was indigenous to the place. Holden. And in Canada was uh, we, we had nothing uh, except for the big three. And uh, I was amazed by your title, Autonomous State, in this context because... It hardly seems autonomous when you think about the big three car manufacturers in the United States setting up branch plants in Canada. It hardly reflects an autonomous state. So tell us why you chose that title. Okay, before I answer the title question,
1: I will point out that the Australians are always talking about the Holden, which was a car that was built in Australia, and it was its own brand but it was owned by general motors
0: <laughs> they never
1: mentioned that fact it just got shut down last year actually the the brand uh, and all automotive production in australia has actually ceased in the last 2 years the last uh, manufacturer which was i think was toyota and Ford have both dismantled their assembly operations. So, you you know, you could call those Australians back and say, hey, we still have automotive at least. The title was something that, uh, again, I I wanted to impart the main point of the book, uh, one of the main points of the book in the title. And when I called it Autonomous State, it was a little bit of a play on word, auto, autonomous, auto state. But the argument was that despite the fact, as you pointed out, Greg, that – This was a branch plant operation where, you know, GM, Ford, Chrysler, most of the industry was owned by foreigners, dominated by foreigners. The point that I realized in going through all the research and spending all those years in doing it was that the Canadian state actually could really push these foreign actors to do stuff, that if there was a political will and uh, proper use of tools, carrots, sticks, whatever, that the Canadian state had autonomy within an otherwise uh, capitalist system that seemed to be dominated by foreign players and uh, an industry that was very much rooted in uh, national control over branch plan operations. But Canadians, Canadian policymakers, ordinary Canadians, uh, Canadian workers, were able to leverage whatever tools they could to push some, not necessarily autonomy, but, ne- but get something back from an otherwise foreign-controlled industry. And they were very successful in doing so. Uh, one of the contrasts I make is that in the f- 60s, 70s, and 80s, Canadian policymakers pushed this idea of an autonomous state pushing these f- foreign car makers to do stuff. And then by the 1990s and 2000s, they were less willing to do so which is part of the problem and explains the decline in the Canadian auto industry.
0: Now, Autonomous State seems to build on your earlier book on the auto pact that was published in 2005 and discusses it at length. So what was the auto pact and why, in your view, was it so important to Canadians?
1: Well, that first book uh, was focused on this trade agreement that emerged in 1965, uh, the creation and the immediate impact of the trade agreement in terms of continentalizing the North American auto industry, the next Autonomous State book is kind of like a sequel which talks about the longer-term implications of that. But the Auto Pact itself was a kind of unique managed trade agreement that really set the stage for free trade in North America in some ways, even though it was a managed trade agreement. And I'll just give you a quick background here. Canada and the United States had two different auto industries on either side of the border, uh, Canada had a kind of miniature replica of the American industry where Ford and Chrysler and General Motors all had branch plan operations where they built and sold as many cars in Canada to Canadians and the Americans had their own industry. Now, Canadians imported U.S. cars that weren't built in Canada, like Cadillac. Cadillac wasn't built in Canada, so lots of Cadillacs came across the border. And that was fine in the period from the 1900s all the way to the 1960s. But by the time you got to the 1960s, the demands of the industry in terms of technological capability around automatic transmissions, the demands for a huge selection of different types of cars, different trim levels, different bells and whistles, the increasing uh, instability of the uh, Canadian side of the industry to maintain production and technological abilities to be able to produce these cars meant that the Canadian car industry was in a real crisis in the early 60s. It couldn't keep up with all the demands, the technological and consumer demands. So Canadian policymakers uh, got into a bit of a trade war, trade dispute with the Americans over this, because they wanted the Americans to Effectively support the Canadian industry uh, better and provide a uh, better uh, technological and production facilities. The long and short of it is that the two countries, in order to avoid a trade dispute, got together and reshaped the North American auto industry in which they continentalized it by getting rid of the tariff wall that had existed since the national policy. Uh, in exchange, for on the part of the producers continuing to produce as many cars as they sold in Canada. So this was the deal. Instead of having pure free trade where uh, Henry Ford's factory in Dearborn would sell cars to all of North America, we had uh, the tariff wall, which meant that there was a Canadian Ford operation right across the river, which makes no sense economically speaking or logically speaking, but tariff walls disrupted that. Getting rid of the tariff wall would mean logically that that Ford operation in Dearborn in Detroit would sell to all of North America once you got rid of the tariff wall. That's the logical thing. But the auto pact prevented that actually from happening by forcing American firms to continue to build as many cars as they did in Canada. But they were able to erase the tariff wall and rearrange their production and integrate it into that of the United States by continentalizing it. So – It used to be that General Motors in Oshawa would build as many brands and models of cars in Canada for sale in Canada because it was just building for Canada. And after the auto pact, now General Motors could say, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, we have an operation in Oshawa. Instead of building 22 vehicles that they're just going to sell in Canada – They're going to build two vehicles that they're going to sell in all of North America. And that's exactly what happened. The uh, uh, industry, the Canadian industry, is continentalized, integrated. Uh, It's made way more productive because it now has economies of scale. Instead of building batches of ten or 20,000 cars to sell in Canada,
0: it's building 200,000 cars to sell in North America. Right. So that's model specialization. And when we talk about the continent, of course, we're talking about... Canada and the U.S. We're not talking about Mexico at that, point. Mexico yeah, at at this that point, point. Just those right. Times. Okay, so uh, you described the role that uh, one public servant, Simon Reisman, played in both negotiating the original Auto Pact uh, in the early 1960s, and then in facilitating uh, the demise of the Auto Pact and the free trade negotiations in the late 1980s. Who was Simon Reisman, and what did he accomplish? on behalf of Canada.
1: Well, Simon Reisman is a fascinating figure. Uh, it is my uh, uh, intent and plan to write a biography of him. It's, he's one of the kind of uh, unheralded figures in post-war Canadian trade and politics. Uh, he's uh, a guy who uh, went to McGill University, grew up in Montreal, uh, was a gunner during the Second World War, joins the Canadian Civil Service and becomes a giant of a public servant uh, in an era where public servants would speak truth to power in a way that they probably don't anymore. Uh, He becomes deputy minister in the Department of Industry, deputy minister in finance. And one of the key things that he does is he is heavily involved in trade around the automotive trade. He's Canada's lead negotiator during the auto pact. And he's the guy who actually demands, you know, this kind of autonomous uh, view of saying, yes, we're going to continentally integrate the Canadian uh, American auto industry, but we're going to demand that Americans, American big three companies continue to build in Canada as part of the cost of doing this. And his uh, negotiating skills are such that he he basically gets uh, what Canada wants, which is a continued vibrant auto industry that's very well supported. So he's really successful in doing this. And, you know, he's the person who creates this one of the key people who creates this continental auto industry, uh, this step towards free trade by getting rid of tariffs.
0: And one of the aspects of that is the fair share argument, and I was kind of puzzled by that because I note by the nineteen eighties, Canadian auto factories are actually producing nearly two million cars a year, as you noted, and this is actually only three quarters of the number that Canadians were actually buying. That seems a little more than a fair share. So how the heck did Canada achieve that?
1: Well, this was a part of the the method to Reisman's madness. In forcing the U.S. car companies to build cars, as many cars as they sold in Canada, he recognized and realized that Canadian production, Canadian facilities, Canadian workers would be an attractive place to build. By the 1970s and the 1980s, there's a whole bunch of other structural factors that come into play that explains why by... Uh, In the 1990s, we're building, in some instances, uh, almost double the number of cars we're consuming. So the sales to production ratio is way higher. And there are some built-in advantages that Canada has. Number one, uh, there's an exchange rate issue here, where uh, the big three can take advantage of the fact that the Canadian dollar goes down to 70 cents US. They're building the same cars for the same market in Oshawa, but they're only paying 70% of the cost in terms of the exchange rate, and they're making that money by selling 80% of the vehicles that
0: they build in Oshawa to the United States. And what about health insurance? That's because uh, because by the 1990s, uh, some car manufacturers began to complain in the United States that they were actually Uh, In the business of producing health insurance rather than cars, it was so much a part of the wage bill. And Canada had Medicare, which meant that the workers didn't have to be covered. Well, it
1: was such a huge advantage, in fact, that Bob White of the Canadian Auto Workers, United Auto Workers, uh, once said that the advantage of uh, having a national health care program and not uh, requiring the automakers in Canada to pay health care costs was the equivalent of about $1,500 being slapped on the hood of every car that came off the line. It was that significant, which was another reason the big three start to push more and more of their production, especially their larger cars. Some of their most important cars, Chrysler builds all of its minivans in Windsor. That plant has built something like 17 million minivans over the last 30 or 40 years. It's not just the exchange rate; it's not just the health care premium. It's also the fact that Canadian workers are really good at building cars. There's less labor turnover. The quality of the vehicle that's coming off the line in Canada, there's all kinds of places that do a lot of studies of the quality of cars. Canadian plants are always at the top. And this even spills over to when Toyota and Honda come here, they start building and launching their vehicles in North America, first in Canada, and then they start building them in the United States because there's a huge advantage Of Canadian workers, so there's these built-in structural and otherwise advantages that means by the 1990s, by in 1999, Ontario becomes the largest jurisdiction in North America for automotive production, more so than Michigan.
0: That's right, and uh, the auto industry has been regarded as Canada's uh, most important industry, certainly the most important industry in Ontario because of its concentration in southern Ontario. In the book, you mentioned the, what I'll call, rhetorical ratio of one in six that has been used by politicians and others for decades. That is that one in six jobs in Ontario is in the automotive industry or automotive-related sector. I note that Premier uh, David Peterson upped the ante in 1985 by raising the ratio to one in five. What actually is this ratio? Is it Accurate.
1: I think I spend the last section of the book, the conclusion, talking about that one in six ratio, which has some basis in reality. You know, it's probably closer at the height of the auto industry in the nineteen seventies, when General Motors had a million employees, and there's uh, so much in the supply chain network that is connected to auto that it's probably around one in seven jobs in North America is connected. But The reality is that that includes everything in the secondary and tertiary aspects of the auto industry. And again, it goes to this point of just how immense automotive is. Because it's not just the production of cars in terms of assembly and parts, which is huge. There's also the sales of cars, which is all of the dealer networks. I mean, you can't drive through any town in Canada or the United States without running into a car dealer. And in many of these smaller rural uh, areas – car dealers are actually the biggest employers, because it's not just the sales of cars, it's also the maintenance of cars. So you have this gigantic network of uh, mechanics. There's the sales of cars around advertising. You think about all the commercials on television or on the internet or on radio, like what percentage are car ads? It's a huge segment. And then of course, there's all the uh, different industries that support that. So you take an example like Oshawa, which recently lost its last plant. Oshawa was a was an automotive town. I mean the hockey team was named the Oshawa Generals after General Motors, and it wasn 't just the plant and the parts plants; it was all the jobs that were connected to supporting those workers banking, food, housing. So once you kind of stretch it out, it is maybe one in six or one in seven at the height now over time, uh, that number has increased. Because the number of people who are building cars has decreased because of productivity advances, robotization, automation, all these other aspects that have made it really uh, easier and quicker and more efficient to build cars with fewer people. But that is reality. I mean, David Peterson in 1985, when he made that statement, it was at the height of the free trade debate, and uh, Ontario was not in favor of free trade, and the auto industry would have been the first, one of the the biggest uh, potential losers in the free trade agreement. And the free trade agreement does have an impact upon the auto pact and the auto industry. So he was using a little bit of a political hyperbole, but it was rooted in some reality.
0: So what was the impact of the OPEC crisis of 1973 on the Canadian car industry, And uh, why did Chrysler need a government bailout, given what happened? We all know about the gas-guzzling cars of the big three. But really, what was the medium-term and long-term impact of the OPEC crisis?
1: Well, that's Chrysler's first bailout because they had another one in 2008. Right. You know, it's in the 1970s, that OPEC oil crisis in 1973 is a real shock to the system. It totally is a kind of wake-up call in a way we can understand a little bit because we've had some shocks to the system about how the economy suddenly grinds to a halt, whether it's 9-11 or coronavirus. Well, in 1973, when the prices in gas went through the roof, the reaction by policymakers was to try to force the auto industry to make cars more efficient. Instead of those gas guzzlers, you'd burn less fuel and go further kilometers. Well, that was one part of a three-crested regulatory wave that the auto industry was dealing with in the 1970s, because it wasn't just about uh, fuel economy and making cars more fuel efficient. It was also about making them safer, making cars not you know, crash and have crash-proof glass, don't have steering wheels that are going to impale people, make sure that people have seat belts. you know, stuff like that to keep people alive. That was one aspect. So safety, uh, fuel economy. And the third one was emissions. Because at this time, in the 1960s and the 1970s, there was a real awakening around smog, around the pollutants that came out of cars. And regulators demanded that the auto industry make cars safer, make cars cleaner in terms of spewing emissions, and make cars go further on the same amount of gas. This is an incredibly difficult technological thing to do, especially when most of the cars that you've been building for the last 20 or 30 years are these gigantic, relatively unsafe, gas-guzzling,
0: toxin-spewing behemoths. Well, that's right. I remember uh, my first car back in uh, 1972 was a Ford Custom 500, It was a big, gas-guzzling monster with a huge engine. And when the engine blew out a year later, I found myself a really economical and incredibly hardy Datsun 510, as it was called then. Now, this was in the midst of the OPEC crisis, the beginning of it. I've bought Japanese cars ever since. And so what happened here? Because at that time, the Japanese cars were foreign imports Within less than a generation, those cars were being made in North America. What changed?
1: Well, your, your statement also answers that question about what happened to Chrysler. Uh, because Chrysler can't keep up with the demands of all these regulators, it's slow. It doesn't sell as many cars. It can't sell as many cars. It costs so much to meet these regulations, and it almost goes bankrupt in 1980. It also almost goes bankrupt because consumers in North America are switching To Japanese vehicles that are more fuel efficient, that do pollute less, are a lot less expensive, and meet all kinds of safety regulations that the American cars are only catching up to now. So there's this huge shift in terms of consumer demand that the Japanese, primarily Toyota, And Honda really meet in North America, where all of a sudden, by the 1970s, this is something that happened before. VW had sold a lot of Beetle bugs in the 60s. All of a sudden, a lot of consumers, North American consumers, are very willing to buy the best vehicle. They're not as attached to national identity when it comes to cars as other places are, weirdly enough. Americans do buy American, but they also buy Japanese and German in a big way, and Korean. And in the 1970s, because the U.S. car industry, the big three of Chrysler, General Motors, and Ford, is having such a problem keeping up with these changes, they're not offering the kinds of reliable cars that the Japanese are, Japanese imports go through the roof to the point where Chrysler is on the brink of bankruptcy. And General Motors and Ford are also in really difficult times. In response, governments, particularly the government of Ronald Reagan, turn around and in a you know, a direct challenge to the uh, idea of free trade, which most Republicans up until Donald Trump have usually followed, basically say to the Japanese, we're going to impose export restraints upon you. They're supposed to be voluntary, by the way. They call them voluntary export restraints, but the Japanese can't import cars into the United States. Otherwise, they're going to face all kinds of financial penalties. So the Japanese, realizing that the number of cars that they can export from Japan to the United States is going to plunge, decide to take the next step, which is, well, why don't we just build cars in North America, in the United States, which is part of the approach that Reagan and policymakers are taking. They want to replace the jobs that are declining because of near bankruptcies like Chrysler and get those workers working in Japanese Owned car companies. So you see this wave in 1984, 1985, 1986, where Toyota and Honda start building the first transplant operations. They're called transplant because they're not uh, American. In Canada, everybody's foreign, but we still call them transplant operations. And in Canada and in the United States, you see this wave of Japanese investment followed by later a German investment where the Japanese and the Germans are avoiding penalties- uh, that they could face from exporting so many cars to the United States by building cars in the United States. It means that uh, th- there's a you know kind of stability in the number of jobs, but those jobs are no longer at American firms. They're at international firms.
0: That's right. Now, back when I had my Ford Custom 500, I also had a well-paying job. I belonged to an international union called the International Woodworkers of America, Almost everyone working in the private sector in a good union job was in one of these international unions. That eventually changed. And I think the big exception to all of this was the Canadian auto workers, which split from the American-based international. Can you tell us why this happened and its relevance to the industry in Canada? It goes back to your earlier point
1: uh, and your earlier question about fair share. You asked about what what is fair share. Well, this is this kind of underlying belief by Canadian policymakers, Canadian workers, Canadian consumers, that despite the fact that Canada doesn't own any of the industry, because the Americans sell so many cars here and gain so much profit and benefits here, that Canada should have a fair share of the investment that goes on in the auto industry in Canada. In other words, you know, you should build car plants here if you're going to sell so many cars here. And workers also feel that there should be a fair share of the benefits of this incredibly profitable industry. And the reason that the Canadian auto workers split from the United Auto Workers in the mid-1980s is in part as a expression of this fair share demand, that auto workers in Canada were locked into the same union as the Americans but auto workers in Canada, for all these reasons we just talked about, were building disproportionate number of cars, faced a different economic landscape, they didn't have to deal with health care benefits, they had their own health care, they got paid a different wage because of the exchange rates. And in a period of increasing nationalism and economic nationalism, the Canadian Auto Workers section of the United Auto Workers broke away because they wanted to be able to negotiate their own deals with the Big Three that granted them more of that fair share. They couldn't do so prior because they were in the same union as the United States. So there would be one kind of a collective bargaining agreement that would basically cover Canada and the United States. And Bob White, who led the union out of the American Union, said, you know what, we need to be able to bargain our own. The other thing that it did do was it gave the Canadian Auto Workers Union even more power because it meant that if the American Union and the Canadian Union were bargaining at different times, because the industry was so integrated, if the Canadian Union went on strike when the American Union wasn't on strike, they could effectively shut down the whole North American auto industry because there's so much parts that go back and forth across the border. There's so many cars that go back and forth across the border. If... General Motors of Canada goes on strike. It means that General Motors of the United States eventually slows down because there's one plant in St. Catharines that builds all of the engines for all of General Motors trucks. If that plant goes on strike, it means that all of the United States operations of the company effectively are shut down, which gives gives the union even more leverage. And this happened in the 1990s and the 2000s, where the Canadian union becomes disproportionately large in the North American context because of the integration of the industry. If they go on strike, everybody shuts down.
0: That's right. And of course, Bob White and the CAW were uh, probably enormous proponents of this kind of managed trade because of the fact that it preserved jobs. And increased uh, union numbers. So how did the Canada-US Free Trade Agreement change this continental market? And when can we say that the auto pact really died?
1: Uh, well, I would say, uh, I agree with you entirely, uh, Bob White and the UAW, uh, the CAW were probably the strongest proponents and advocates of maintaining the auto pact, in part because it included these guarantees in the agreement that meant that Canadians had to build as many cars or the Canadian branch plant operations had to build as many cars as they sold. Now, when the auto pact is negotiated in 1965, uh, nobody sees a world where the Japanese- are going to be building cars in North America. Nobody even thought that that was even a possibility in 1965. It's amazing how quickly things change. But by the 1980s, the Japanese are in North America, and there is a broader movement afoot to move towards free trade. Obviously, automotive is a big part of this aspect. And it's funny because Brian Mulroney in the 1980 election often almost disingenuously points at the auto Pact to say, hey, look, here's an example of free trade that really worked, that's been incredibly beneficial for Canadians. This should reassure everybody that going to a free trade agreement is going to be a great thing for Canada even though it was actually a managed trade agreement. And it had less to do with free trade than most people would say. But, you know, he was a politician and he was wanting to make the case and he he did so. And the funny thing is, uh, you asked earlier about uh, Simon Reisman. Well, like only Nixon could go to China. Only Simon Reisman could retool the auto pact because he'd been the guy who created the auto pact or had been the chief Canadian negotiator. He was also the chief Canadian negotiator for the free trade agreement. And when he negotiated the free trade agreement, he did include a bunch of measures that would effectively kill the auto pact. It would mean that over time, those guarantees to require the big three operators to build as many cars as they sold in Canada would eventually be gone. So the auto pact dies in 1989, and then it dies officially again in 2001 at the World Trade Organization when its uh, final aspects are ruled illegal under WTO rules.
0: Well, Dimitri, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here, Craig. My guest today was Dimitri Anastakis. We talked about his book, Autonomous State, The Struggle for the Canadian Car Industry from OPEC to Free Trade, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2013. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. I also want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Greg Marshaldon and this podcast was recorded at Ryerson University on March 11th, 2020. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt. We look forward to you joining us again.